Well, hello and welcome to Military History Plus, the podcast that looks at the history of war in breadth and depth. I'm your co-host, Professor Gary Sheffield, and I'm joined as ever by my friend and colleague, Dr. Spencer Jones. Right. Good morning, Spence. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about battlefield tours and staff rides. Is there a difference between the two? Well, this is following on, I should say, from our special podcast where we looked at what historians actually do in response to um, Ridley Scott's interesting comments <laughs> in support of his Napoleon film. And we're not going to be going down that track again today. But actually, we had quite a lot of, I think, really good feedback from people who enjoyed what we said about different aspects of what historians uh, do. But one thing that was said by someone to me was that actually you only touch on a, a, a small part of it, the way that historians deal with documents. Actually, there's lots of other sources of evidence that historians deal with. And one of those for military historians is actually walking the ground over which battles were conducted. So we thought we would have a look at that today. We're both quite experienced battlefield guide stroke historians, and later on we'll be discussing if there's a difference between the two. So Spence, when's the first time you went on a battlefield tour? It's it's a really good question, and I'll be absolutely honest, Gary, and possibly besmirching my credentials as a historian, I can't remember my absolute first battlefield tour, but I can remember one of the first... And that was actually the Battle of Bosworth with my parents I when I was still at school, at, uh, secondary school. Now, of course, um, listeners who are particularly interested in the War of the Roses will know there's actually a debate about whether where we have the Battle of Bosworth marked out in Britain is actually its location. And there's been chewing and throwing between archaeologists and other historians about whether it's in the right place. But this was uh, obviously some decades ago. And at the time, it was the first battlefield that I'd really properly walked on. And it was also helpfully signposted. Of course, it was a self-guided tour. There was no actual battlefield guiding there. But I remember I absolutely loved it. And I think my father loved it as well. He's a very keen mil into military history too. Perhaps that's where I get it from. And I remember particularly the, the sense, and I'm assuming at this point, um, listeners, if you're a real expert in Tudor warfare, please don't write in and tell me I'm wrong. But I do remember the the sense of uh, looking down and looking at the location where um, Richard III supposedly met his, his grisly end in that sort of slightly boggy ground where he's led his cavalry or he's led his bodyguard into a charge to try and kill Henry at the last uh, and has been killed himself and thinking, this is incredible. This is walking the ground. So I'd have been a teenager and uh, it absolutely gripped me. And since then, I've, I've lost track of the number of battlefields I've done. But that I'm 99% sure that was the first. What about you, Gary? Where did it all begin for you? Well, actually, similarly, the first one I can remember is going round the battlefield of Hastings. And I would have been a teenager. I've been about 14 or 15. I was on holiday with my parents in that neck of the woods in Sussex. And uh, I took myself off on a bus journey for the day went to Battle Abbey, and we were taken round by a battlefield guide. And that's pretty sure it's the first time I did any sort of formal battlefield tour. Fast forward a few years, decade or so, and I went on one of the Holtz, Major and Mrs. Holtz, battlefield tours to the Somme in 
1984 it would have been as a as a punter and that's the first time i went on a what we were I, I, the sort of battlefield tour which i think most people would be familiar with the first battlefield tour i actually led or at least co-led was one of normandy and that would have been in 1986 or 87 when i took a, a group of cadets over over from santa so anyway it goes back a long way Right, well, let's dig a bit deeper into in, in, into battlefield tours. Yeah, would you like to speculate when the first battlefield formal battlefield tour actually took place, Spence? Well, there's an interesting line in itself, Gary. A formal battlefield tour, as opposed to an old soldier visiting the location of a battle. I would suspect the first battlefield tours probably took place in antiquity, and exactly when that was. I don't know, uh, but I'd hesitate to speculate. I would put it perhaps uh, the ancient Greeks, you know, things like um, looking at a place like Marathon and Thermopylae and so on and so forth. I can imagine the old soldiers initially and then perhaps his, obviously historians of the year ago. But I don't know actually when the first battlefield tour was, but I suspect that battlefield touring is as old as warfare itself, to revisit the site of an engagement. And whether it's veterans telling their tales or remembering their fallen comrades or people trying to learn something from it, I think it's a, one of those human activities that probably stretches back into the most distant past. What do you think about that? Well, the short answer is, like you, I don't know. I just committed the, the terrible error which uh, a rookie barrister would tell you about, which is... Uh, Never ask a question in court that you don't know the answer to. <laughs> but of course, in formal learning terms, we're looking back at the Prussian army, Prussian stroke German army in the 19th century, introducing what they call staff rides as a very specific way of teaching officers using previous battlefields, uh, te teaching people about warfare. And, and so on, of course. And we still use the term staff ride to this very day. And we'll come on to that later. But of course, originally, it was literally people on horses riding around a battlefield. I think it's also worth pointing out there are different sorts of battlefield tours. Now, sat down the other day and made a list of the sort of things which could plausibly called battlefield tours. And it struck me there, there, there are three, at least three varieties, or maybe four varieties one one uh, i think you have a subset the first one is you do a battlefield tour purely from curiosity now i heard the term dark tourism as in you're going on a holiday uh like you might wander around a city like venice or or, or, or paris the difference is you're walking around a battlefield and you're sort of soaking up the atmosphere and looking in, in, in interesting stuff so that's really battlefield tourism at the sort of you know just a little bit curious level and that still goes on of course the second one is what i think we can call the the pilgrimage which is when you go to a particular battlefield because you have an emotional or sentimental connection with it i guess the obvious point would be at the end of the First World War, of course, there was a, a boom in taking parties of veterans' families, uh, often you know, widows and children and parents, 
to the Western Front to see the places where their loved one had fought and died just a few years before. <clears throat> Excuse me. And of course, um, because the, the fighting was comparatively close to Britain, you didn't need to be that wealthy to pay to have a trip across the channel on the boat train and be put up in somewhere like Arras and then conducted round the battlefields. It, it's, it, I've come across this recently in some of my research, because very sadly that uh, we're not talking about huge sums of money, even by the standards of the 1920s and 30s, but it was beyond the pocket of some. And so recently I came across an example of a of a soldier who was in France in 1939 with the second BEF, as it were. And he visited his father's grave um, because his mother had never been able to afford to go out, out there. So that's, I think, part of it. And, and again, you still get these sort of pilgrimages today, just to, to some extent. People simply going out to the battlefields and wandering around. It sounds a bit pejorative, but it's not intended to be. Emoting. Mm. Uh, wandering, wandering around. Now, I Maybe you've come across this, but uh, I remember some years ago, I was at a conference in the States and we had a, a very well-known cultural historian who uh, renamed nameless to uh, protect the guilty. And he gave a, a talk on battlefield tours and he didn't mention battlefield tours for education once. He clearly thought it was all about emotion and, mm. and, and, and sentiment. And I, and I spoke to him about this afterwards privately and he was genuinely surprised that mm. anybody would do this. So, of course, this was in the mid-1990s when the United States Army in particular were very, very big on staff rights and battlefield tours. But uh, that had completely el eluded him. Anyway, so I think the whole pilgrimages thing <clears throat> is a fascinating subject. We're not one we're going to touch on today particularly, but we need to mm. put those to one side. What I really want to talk about today is the use of battlefield tours for education and as tools for historical research. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. can you think of any other categories of battlefield tours that I've, I, I've missed out? No, I think those are the, the, the big ones. And one thing I'd just wait, add weight and emphasis to, you, to your comments is, in Britain, certainly, this the idea of battlefield tourism really explodes after the First World War. It becomes a, a public experience rather than just a, a military professional experience. And one thing that about the contrast between pilgrimages and tourism, and we still have a little bit of this occasionally today. I remember in the centenary period, just over a decade ago, just under a decade ago, there was some talk about um, some huffing and puffing about people who were going up to the battlefields um, out of pure curiosity and they weren't really, they weren't being ill-behaved or anything, but it was felt they weren't showing proper deference and respect to the battlefields and to the cemeteries. That doesn't mean that they were clowning around or climbing on things or anything like that. It's just that they were sort of curious and they were gawking a little bit. And it reminded me of the work of uh, one of our friends in the field, Professor Mark Connolly, who's written a lot about battlefield tourism in the 1920s. And even in the 20s, there was that debate in the newspapers because some people would go out and they wanted to remember fallen friends, fallen comrades, fallen relatives, and they were very reverential. But there were also soldiers who were going, and it was mainly soldiers who were going out, who were going out basically to form drinking clubs 
and have a little bit more of a holiday and a bit of a wild time. And one of my favourite stories is around Ypres at the time it was being rebuilt, there were some tanks, some First World War tanks were there, obviously disarmed, and you could pay and you could have photographs taken on and around the tanks. And there's all these photographs people had taken. And what are they doing on the tanks? Well, they're clowning around. They're climbing on them. They're sitting on guns. They're sticking their heads out of portholes and, and grinning at the camera. And at the time, that caused some huffing and puffing in the national press. People said, this isn't respectful. But this is the 20s. A lot of these people in these photos had fought in the war. So it's a debate that's that's gone on for a while. But going on to yeah. the subject of, of educational tours and staff rides, one thing I, I thought worth just getting across the readers now because I, i'll be honest at times i get asked this question and i'm not entirely sure how to answer it nowadays in the 21st century what's the big difference between a battlefield tour which anybody can undertake just get in your car or get on the eurostar or get on a plane go and see it and a staff ride okay well i had a, a hand in the development of the british military staff ride in the first 15 years or so of of this century uh, i taught at sandhurst and then i went on to the joint services command and staff college the difference i would say is that a battlefield tour is something where a party gets taken around a battlefield by a knowledgeable guide stroke historian and we will pin down the difference in a minute and they basically are told about stuff was on this very spot that the British guards repulse the Imperial Guard at Waterloo or whatever it is. And, and you give a description and people, you know, ask questions and all the rest of it. A staff ride, I think, is a two-way thing, whereby uh, ideally, it doesn't always work like this, as I know to, to my cost, the the people going on the on the trip do some preliminary work. They read around the subject. And again, ideally, they actually prepare a presentation which they give on the ground. And I must say, staff rides have developed in, in different ways because there are purely, if I put it this way, purely, might say, narrative staff rides, whereby you, I don't know, I, th I think of an example, I, I, I took a party of officers to. Uh, Normandy, and we did uh, Wittmann at uh, Via Bocage in June 1944. And a group of people, one group of, of students were talking about the, the relative uh, effectiveness of German tanks as opposed to British tanks. Another one was talking about British training as opposed to German training. And we sort of, that, that sort, of, sort of span out into a, a discussion. Uh, on the, on the higher command and staff course, which is the senior operationally focused course for the British military, or at least when I was the land warfare historian there 15 or so years ago, we would sometimes go broader than that. So, for example, I, I remember going to Sheffield Memorial Park, nothing to do with me. It's a Sheffield City Battalion on the Somme at Serre. And there's, is it Railway Hollow, that cemetery? Mm -hmm just behind the front line. And there were some medical facilities there in 1916. And so it started off with, with me, I think it might even be Richard Holmes actually, uh, giving the, the, the talk about what happened at Sare. And then one of the students, who I think was a, a medical corps, Royal, Royal Army Medical Corps officer, then spoke briefly about 
what was going on in Railway Hollow. And then it span out into a wider discussion about the role of uh, medics on the battlefield and the importance of medicine in morale and so on and so forth. So in other words, what we did was use the um, the background, the scenery, if you like, of the battlefield to prompt a wider discussion about key issues. And something which I guess you've probably discovered too, there's something about going to a battlefield, particularly if you've had someone telling you about the situation, someone, uh, and you've done some work on it yourself, some reading on it, on it yourself, it actually prompts discussion like nothing else. You could have exactly the same discussion in a seminar room, in a classroom, but somehow being there on the ground, the emotion combines with the intellect, if you like, to open tongues, open minds, open hearts even, and some of the most rewarding teaching, the most uh, well, teaching stroke learning I can remember, have taken place on battlefields. Normally, it should be said in the pouring rate, uh, <laughs> when, when the light's starting to fail and you're starting to think about the first beer of the evening. Uh, but no, but it's, it's, it's a serious point. Going to a battlefield is an experience like no other, which is so valuable, I think, for education. I couldn't agree more. And just your comment about being on a battlefield provokes sparks of inspiration and it allows people to, to share ideas and share thoughts in a way that you don't always get in the classroom. That's absolutely been my experience. But whether it's been taking students on battlefield tours, university students or soldiers and officers on battlefield tours. And I, I, I imagine there is probably a literature about this. Why does it provoke these kind of reactions? But whether it's something about the sense of space, the sense of scale, the fact that you're out of the classroom, the fact, and this is just a comment on particularly students who might not be quite so academically high-flying as some of their colleagues, whether the fact that you can, uh, you don't have to be, you know, have your nose in a book, you can look around the ground, and that allows perhaps students who aren't so, aren't so confident or perhaps aren't so high-flying to speak. Whatever the case is, some of the happiest teaching experiences I've had have actually been on battlefield tours, seeing people connect yeah. with the ground, the feel of a battle. And in some cases, and this is something that often surprises me, the emotions about the the, the, the nature of combat, the sacrifice of combat, you, you see it hit home. And uh, particularly with when we take undergraduate students out on battlefield tours, you've got they're 19, between 19 and 20 usually when they go on their tour. And then when you're in cemeteries and you're seeing row upon row of 19 and 20-year-old soldiers and airmen or anybody else who've fallen, I've seen some real emotional reactions from the least likely sources, you know, the big, tough yeah. rugby players. It's usually they who really feel that moment. But educationally, I, I, I really, if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, and I know you're the same, Gary, I wouldn't believe how powerful it can be yeah, as an educational yeah. tool. Well, let's let's stick and talk about civilian education at the moment. We'll talk about military education in a little while. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. One of my first examples of using battlefields for civilian education was, I can't remember how I got involved, but uh, I, I went on at least two, maybe three battlefield tours with a school back in the 80s. And I, 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 the teacher was a friend of a friend. I, I can't really remember how I got involved. Anyway. Um, and we went to the Western Front, and it really was not a battlefield tour 
in the sense I would recognise it today at all. It was a lot of emoting going from cemetery to cemetery, a cemetery crawl, as one of my Sandhurst colleagues used to call it. But the raw emotion, I think, is really important. And I do remember being at uh, Beaumont Hamill. For those who don't know, this is the Newfoundland Battlefield Park. It's now run by uh, the the Canadians. <clears throat> Excuse me. And at the time, you could sort of wander all over the battlefield. Now you're actually restricted to, to some various uh, to some particular paths to, to preserve the battlefield. But I remember going into, I think, is it Hunter's Cemetery? There's, there's, a, there's a very small cemetery, which actually is um, was created as a result of the attack of the 51st Highland Division there in November. So it's not the, the big Newfoundland attack on the 1st of July, 1916. And some of the kids at this, and they would have been, I don't know, 14, 15, something like that. Some of the kids were quite tough. And uh, not for the first time, or indeed the last, I was truly thankful I never went into school teaching because I love teaching. I really enjoy teaching. But throughout my career, I've taught people who basically wanted to be there. And I've never had to zoo keep. I've never had to, uh, you know, maintain discipline. So, you know, hat tip to everybody out there who's a teacher <laughs> who teaches Absolutely. kids to deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, but... And, we came into this cemetery and there was a group of kids from another school. You know, I don't know who they were, but they weren't, weren't, weren't from this school. And they weren't doing anything too bad, but they were sort of a bit, bit of larking around and messing around. And there's a, there's a uh, if I'm, if I remember it rightly, there's uh, the cross of sacrifices on sort of a, a plinth thing. And they were sitting on that. And there was one of these um, kids from our school who she would have been 14 or 15 at the time, was already quite large and formidable. Mm. And she went in and she gave <laughs> these kids from other school an absolute mouthful <laughs> about being disrespectful. She was effing and blinding and what have you. Of course, the teachers, you know, uh, affected not to hear the language that was being used. And, and the kids in the other school slunk away. <laughs> <laughs> in and, and actually, I thought that was a really, really interesting example of how these kids had really been affected by wandering around a battlefield. Now, today, I'd look back and say, you know, it's a bit of a waste. We should have actually told them a bit of military history rather than, than empathising. But actually, there is something simply to going to a place like that, seeing serried rows of headstones looking at the ages of the mm. of, of the, the people involved and pointing out to the kids they're just a few years older than you are. Mm. And mm. that was one of the best examples I've ever seen of the emotional impact. And I don't suppose they had any connection, any family connection at all with these particular people, but it really made a difference. Mm. Mm. I've, I've never done any school guiding or anything like that. And just to echo your comments, Gary, um, I... I endless respect for anybody who teaches in in a school um not something i could have ever done at all um I, i've always been blessed to be teaching people who, who as you say want to be there but just to echo your comments you know the the emotional reaction for young people it's not always universal but when it happens it's it's quite striking and and something that they definitely don't teach you when you're you're when you're first taking undergraduate students on battlefield tours is that you might get some tears from some unexpected quarters and I, I i've seen that I, I have seen that where just for whatever reason the the emotional 
weight takes hold and uh, it's not something that you expect to see I, I remember a few years ago on an undergraduate battlefield tour had a group of um they were they were nice students but they were very lad students you know drinking partying you know big rough tough kind of characters bold characters and i remember we were looking at actually it was down <clears throat> on the song but we we're looking at 1918 casualties and of course you've got lots and lots of not only young soldiers but pretty young officers too you see you know officers you see men of eight who are aged 18 buried next to their officers who are aged about 21 and these students between 19 and 20, and for whatever reason, I remember it just really hit them. And there was a little group of four of them who were fine students in many respects, but the least like you'd expect to have an emotional reaction. And, uh, yeah, you know, every every it was a real kind of, you know, cheer up old man kind of moment. And and I remember it was it was a real moment because it was I was stood with them and suddenly just became aware that they were having this emotional reaction. And it was I wasn't entirely sure what to do. So I just let it happen. And uh, yeah, it was it was a powerful moment. And. As I say, I wouldn't have believed that kind of thing would happen so regularly if I hadn't seen it. Well, actually, I must say, I actually sometimes get quite emotional on battlefields. Mm. I mean, I I think I keep it under control, but sometimes I can tell my, you know, the lump in the throat thing and my voice starts to break when I talk mm. about these sorts of stuff. And, you know, I'm a, I've been doing this for years. I mean, the number of war memoirs I've read, the number of military history books i've read it I've, I've i've lost count so i'm you know I, you would have thought you'd be immune to it but no i mean just something about being on a battlefield sometimes mm. it simply gets to you. it 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 it, mm. it just does yeah mm. well, i couldn't it's... agree more just to just to come in on that one thing i've had and this this may we may be d descending possibly into a sort of paranormal supernatural element here but i, I there's been certain battlefields i've been on and i've had just an overwhelming sort of sense of time and place um, one that sticks in my head is loose. I don't know what it is about that battlefield, but it, uh, there's just a sense of gloom and doom whenever I'm there. And um, in terms of sort of having emotional reactions, I've got a vivid memory of being a top spion cop, which is a very haunting battlefield. You know, you're so isolated, so quiet up there. It's just the sound of the wind. I was actually on, on top of spion cop on the 110th anniversary, and there was a small ceremony there, wreath laying. There was a, a reading in both English and Afrikaans, a bugle sounded, and that's one of the I talk about an emotional moment. I mean, goodness me. So, it, it, yeah, it affects even old cynics like you and I, Gary. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually not very sensitive to atmosphere, generally speaking. But some, and of course, if you're leading a battlefield tour, you don't really get much time to reflect because you're going from point A to point B, you're checking that the locals haven't changed the the road names or they haven't put a bar to gate or something or someone's mm -hmm. asking you questions but occasionally you do you do get that that moment and at stopping and thinking and contemplating that's the moment when it sort of hits you uh, mm -hmm. the enormity using the word in its correct way <laughs> of what you're dealing with uh actually, actually hits you now mm -hmm. um did you have anything to do with the university of wolverhampton normandy trip I did. So, so the University of Wolverhampton run, for those listeners, um, just to bring you up to speed, they run a, a Normandy trip. So takes a group of undergraduate students out in their second year. So they're generally between 19 and 20. And we look at the, the British side of Normandy. So um, or British and Canadian side. So sword, gold, Juno beaches, then inland, uh, following the battles, Goodwood, Epsom, Bluecoat and so on. Um, 
for, for a substantial number of students, that's their first ever battlefield tour. And some of them, it's also their first time in France, which, you know, you've got a, a group of 19, 20-year-olds. Uh, it does propose certain problems. The stories I could tell offline, buy me a drink <laughs> if you see them at a conference, that would, would cause eyebrows to raise. But um, it's really interesting because that is, uh, it's a tour that, that started originally, it was a, a real bit of a whistle-stop tour. Now it's a full week and it's... I would say, and full disclosure, you know, I do work at the University of Wolverhampton and Gary used to work at the University of Wolverhampton, so a bit by, I think it's a terrific example of a bringing in elements of a, a really formal sort of educational tour with visiting cemeteries, finding time to reflect on this yeah. and also, you know, giving the students a little bit of time to themselves so they can let off a little bit of steam uh, and just see a little bit of France as well. well so I think I think it's, it's worth if we if we spend a little bit of time talking about what they actually do. Now, actually, again, full disclosure, I was professor at the University of Wolverhampton and they never asked me to go on this on this Normandy <laughs> trip. I, I was I was outraged. I kept asking and they said, Oh, perhaps next year, and it never actually happened. So I did actually go. Um but it from Having talked to you and to our colleague, uh, Professor John Buckley and uh, Professor Steve Badsey, it did seem to me like a really interesting way of bringing together different bits of mm. education. Um, and of course, getting out onto the battlefield, it has that emotional warmth. Mm. Mm. I mean, again, we could have done all of that, I guess, in theory, in a classroom. But actually, mm. unless you get out on the ground, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't have the same impact. So, they had some background reading and and mm -hmm. they do little presentations, things like that. Is that is that correct? That's right. So they it takes place about midway through the module. So they've had a, a already had a, about six to six to six seven eight weeks of classroom education. So they've they've got a really good feel of what happened in the campaign, the big debates about the campaign, the broad elements of the campaign. And then when we take them out, it is it's a chronological tour. So we we start on on the beaches and we we steadily move inland, and uh. As well as doing stands, so the stands from the staff where we'll discuss things, there's exercises for them to do on the ground. We're quite keen on giving the students shoots, which for those of you who don't know from the military, a tactical exercise without troops, where we'll say, OK, you've got to take this position. Here are your resources in a group, 10 minutes, come up with some way of doing it. And the students, I have to say, absolutely love that. And what's interesting is, is on the ground, of course, you, you get students with binoculars lying down, peering, climbing things. Uh, it's really interesting how they interact with the ground around them. Well, well, if a jute is a tactical exercise without troops, do you know what a jute is? A jute? I don't know. What is a jute? Jungle exercise without trees. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that well, one. <laughs> Tune in to Military History Plus for more great jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have heard I actually have heard that 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 phrase phrase being used. Um shoots, I think um again I, I think we might park it there and come back, back up to that when we talk about the military in a in a minute. But just to say I think that exposing civilian students to some of the techniques that are more usually used in military education is fairly unusual, I think. And I think yes. actually quite uh, quite valuable for students because it gives them a different perspective than they're likely to get from normal civilian education. I think probably here is a time, I think we there's there's a sort of spectrum at the feast which we've, we've been avoiding. What's the difference, if indeed there is one, between a battlefield guide and a battlefield historian? 
Put you on the spot. Question. Well, I'm going to be absolutely hands on heart here and say uh, I always view myself as a battlefield historian. Um, and reason for that is I've worked with some absolutely terrific battlefield guides. Um, you know, I'm not going to name one or two: Clive Harris, Dan Hill, yeah, yeah. Uh, various others who are all in the field at the moment. And I am in awe at the way battlefield guides solve problems because for me, I can say I, my French is absolutely appalling. I can say my name's Spencer and I like football. That's about as far as I go with my French. And I can also say, do you speak English, which is incredibly useful. Um, <laughs> but a battlefield guide is, is a manager of the program as well. And they ensure smooth running. It's they who, when we arrive at a, an obscure French a rural hotel and they've got to check in 18 people at once and the receptionist isn't very happy about it they're the ones who smooth that problem when the coach suddenly can't go down a narrow road because there's roadworks there they're the ones who plot a return route and i think being a battlefield guide and i've got immense admiration for those who do this professionally it's a real talent and a good battlefield guide can make or break a tour yeah. Um, I've been blessed that I've never had a battle worked with a, a, an, in, an inferior battlefield guide in any way, but I've heard some horror stories about it. So, so for my part, I, I view myself as a battlefield historian. So I go along with the group, talk to them, share history, and on the field itself, I can explain what's happening and so on. I, I would state that um, many of the best battlefield guys can do that too. They can also direct the history. As right, well. right. I'm now going to cause some controversy. Or should Ooh. that be controversial? Ooh. Well, because <laughs> one of the criticisms we've had of this podcast is we spend too much time agreeing with each other. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I'm not entirely coincidental because actually, I, I remember talking to, in fact, with Tom Holland, who uh, uh, has a, a, a small podcast you, you may have heard of called uh, The Rest is History. Now, I'm talking to Tom about podcasts, and, and he said, you need to make sure that if you, if you do one, because I was saying I, I, I quite like the idea of doing one, uh, you need to do it with someone and you share a similar sense of humour, <laughs> uh, which he does, of course, with uh, Dominic Samarok. And, and I think I, 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 I do with you. So actually, yes, yeah, so we, we do think alike a lot of things. But on this thing, on this occasion, I have a different view mm. because I think that um, what you're talking about is really... Uh, to a manager and i would say a tour guide is much more on the ground this is what happened here the suffolks went left flanking bavarians came down the middle that sort of thing mm. and there's no hard and fast difference between a guide and a historian except to say i think that historians have the ability because of their wider understanding and reading to put the thing in a wider context. Mm. Now, that can be an excuse if an academic goes on a battlefield tour and they genuinely don't know that mm. the Suffolks went left flanking and the Bavarians came down the middle and said, oh, let me put it in a bigger strategic context. That's a bit of a cheat. Um, but I would say the difference between a battlefield guide and a battlefield historian is really depth of understanding and breadth of understanding. So going on to the themes of this podcast series, which mm. is why, and this is actually going back to our, our special, when we talk about what historians do, it's been very rewarding for me, and, and I guess for you too, when mm. we've had quite a number of battlefield guides come on our MAs and go away much more equipped 
to make the jump from Battlefield Guide to Battlefield Historian. Mm, mm. Uh, not to say that you know there aren't lots of very knowledgeable and uh, insightful battlefield guides out there but historians generally the ones who have god bang on about this again the, the analytical tools the context and they can bring a degree of richness to mm. what they do so clive harris you mentioned i, I agree is an excellent battlefield uh, guide he's now an excellent battlefield historian Mm, mm. He came away. He did the MA with us. He actually now has got a, 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 a as he would, would tell you, a, a much greater knowledge of the context. And you know, he is uh, one of our shining examples of 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 how you can actually take something that's basically good and make it even better. So shout out to Clive and and, and to Battle Honors, his uh, his 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 company, which which I uh, I must say I, I have been been very impressed by. So. Mm. Battlefield Guide, Battlefield Historian, it's really, I think, about depth of understanding and context. And mm. it's 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 not magic, being able to turn yourself from one to the other. It's really just getting stuck in and and and, and doing the the hard work with a bit of a with with a bit of bit of guidance, I'd say. Mm. If I could just come in on that, and I'm enjoying this a little bit of uh, you know back and forth on that, <laughs> I would agree to an extent. With ah, no, 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 more controversy. More controversy. Uh, partially, I, I'm biased here because one of my most humorous but also worst experiences on a battlefield tour involved a very prestigious military historian who joined the tour and clearly had absolutely no idea about the battles that he was supposedly commenting on. His overall view of the war we were studying was was absolutely vast, but he he didn't know a single thing about the ground we were actually on, and he'd not cared to prepare himself for the store. Listeners, if you're interested in his, buy me a drink. There's a lot of drinks can be bought here. It's one drink per story. <laughs> uh, but I do think one, one aspect... And I've known historians, uh, academic historians, get caught out by this. That is different between um, teaching military history and guiding military history is that you've got to know the ground. And turning up as a military historian with great breadth of knowledge and all this and then landing on the ground and not actually knowing which way is north, not having a compass, not having a map. I've seen it happen. And I think um, being a battlefield guide incorporates as I agree with you. I think a military story might bring a much greater breadth. That's the nature of the, the the job. But being a battlefield guide, I think you know the ground, or you should know the ground, and you should know the looks and crannies, and uh, that's always an important skill. So I think the two. I think there is a yeah. subtly different skill set. Uh, no, I, I I absolutely agree agree with that. Um, battlefield guides do bring something different to the party. And actually, speaking as someone who describes himself as a battlefield historian, um, I have been bailed out on more than one occasion by a good guide <laughs> who does know the ground. Um, in fact, only fairly recently, <clears throat> I was uh, at, at Ypres, actually. I took a party there, and... I was going to talk about the attack of the Liverpool Scottish. So the 10th King's Liverpools, I think, uh, in, in June 1915. And anyway, I'd, I'd been there earlier in the year. And it's a two-part stand. You First of all, you, you, you walk up, so you park the coach, you, you, you walk along to the memorial to the Liverpool Scottish, which is uh, actually very nice, actually. It's the... Uh, it's it's a badge, a sort of stone badge, which was on the the drill hall in Liverpool. And when the when the the, the drill hall was 
demolished. They kept that, and it's now in in situ in Belgium as as a memorial to the to the Liverpool Scottish. Mm. So I do part one there. I then take them about a hundred yards or so down a track, and you have a fantastic view over this valley where the, the Liverpool Scottish attacked. And uh, I had a really good guide the first time. Uh, and the second time, uh, I was basically on my own. And I took them down there and I, and I said, as we turn the corner, you'll be able to see. And what you could see was 10 foot high corn. You couldn't see anything because <laughs> it was the wrong time of the year. And had I had a decent guide with me <laughs> as I had earlier in the year, he would have known that. He or she would have known that. Uh, okay. So, so actually, no. And I, I think having a guide who knows the ground is really, really key. When you get a sort of super being who can combine fantastic knowledge of the ground with um, the background context, and you get a guide stroke historian, really you have the best of both worlds. So, but but I must say, I, I think you're right. Some of the best battlefield tours, stroke staff rides I've ever been on, have been ones in which I have been cooperating with a really, really good guide. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. I think it adds a, a huge element to this. And uh, I, I've been, I had my blushes saved once. I remember I misread a compass, and I was, I was actually very enthused. I was doing, I was doing third EP as a battlefield. Quick glance at compass, looked at one or two things, and I was confidently saying, oh, in this direction, this. And the guide walked over to me, and so subtly, um, absolute subtle, saying, I think you've got your compass upside down. <laughs> and uh, that was it was so he could have really made that make me look foolish he just very subtly reoriented me and it passed off and i like to think nobody ever noticed the difference so <laughs> shout out to all the battlefield guides out there who've uh, steered us over enthusiastic historians right let's we've sort of drifted away from the subjects of civilian education let's go on to military education now and we've still got of course the role of the battlefield as a, as a research tool to look at but let's, let's look at military education now both of us i think had a lot of experience of taking parties primarily of soldiers but also of certainly in my case sailors and airmen as well and, and indeed mixed parties and uh, i would count this as some of the most rewarding teaching i've ever done for the, for the military, and I actually did find teaching the British military uh, and on the whole an extremely rewarding experience. And you're the historian of the, of the Royal Artillery, so I guess you must have yes. taken the gunners on a, a more than a few battlefield tours. I certainly have, yes, and and that's that's always a great experience because, and I think this is just worth mentioning for the listeners: a civilian tour, you obviously get very enthusiastic, or often get very enthusiastic guests. They want to learn; they're interested. They may have family connections. The military approach it from a, a professional view, and it's it's really interesting because they'll tend to default into trying to solve a problem or study a view a problem through the modern 21st century army lens. And that's interesting. It's obviously interesting for them. It lets them think about their craft. But it's also interesting for us as historians because they approach these problems in different ways to what to the way we might, for example. And um, I think a really good battlefield tour with the military can be rewarding in a very different way to a tour with the civilians because there's often a real interchange of ideas and uh, yeah. concepts. And sometimes they'll point out things that uh, through their soldiering knowledge, you suddenly think, oh, yes, that's a great point. And then you can add context to this and so on. So um, the only thing I'll say about staff rides as opposed to civilian tours is um, a, a good civilian tour 
can sometimes have an element of being on holiday as well. So at the end of the day, you have a nice glass of, of wine or beer in a beautiful French village. Um, staff tours, I find it tends to be very early starts, quite late finishes, lots of um, powerful, deep discussion. And by the end of every staff tour I've done, or staff ride I've done, I always come back and I think, bloody, I'm absolutely beat. <laughs> I'm ready for a oh, weekend off. Uh, <laughs> To, to use a technical term, I'm completely cream crackered when I come back <laughs> from a, a star yeah. ride. Um, because you have, I mean, you're actually right, you have all of these things in the mix. They are deeply emotional very often. Mm. Uh, because, particularly because you're dealing with regular officers, uh, and at least some of them, <laughs> well, certainly my experience, you find out you're, you're talking about their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. Mm. Mm. Um you know, people people have, have have long family traditions of being in the military, and occasionally you you have to be slightly careful about what you say because uh, you might end up you know inadvertently dissing, if not them as individuals, their 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 units. Mm. Uh, but you also have, I think, uh, you're right, you're right. This this intellectual input, and I think we should be clear: the military don't do battlefield tours, staff rides. Uh, because they're great fun, or even because it's sort of generally educational. They go because it's a training tool. And indeed, in these times of, 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 of purse strings being drawn very tightly shut, uh, and it's more and more difficult to go on exercise overseas, sending mm. people on staff rides, or battlefield studies as they call them, is 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 a relatively cheap alternative and i don't think it's an inferior alternative either because actually going out there and getting people to exercise their their brains to use in particular modern analytical military techniques to look back and analyze past campaigns is ex is extremely valuable so one one very basic level you can take them to a battlefield and say okay this is what happened in 1915 or 1944 how would you do it today and then they they'd start to apply modern methods. And that works for well. There's, there's, there's more sophisticated ways of doing it as well, but that at, at really quite a basic level. And also, I think the point you made just now about soldiers' experience is important mm. because I do remember being on Sword Beach, so the, where 3rd British Division landed on D-Day, 6th of June, 1944. And I was talking about the experience of... The, uh, the DD tanks, so the, the amphibious tanks, the, 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 the swimming Shermans coming mm. ashore. It was, it was either the 13th, 18th Hussars or the 4th, 7th Dragoon Guards. Can't remember which one, it does, doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, and, you know, I, I was giving an account of, written by someone who was there, coming ashore in a DD tank. And very quietly uh, in the discussion which followed, uh, uh, an Armoured Corps officer started talking about what it's like being in a tank and being shot at mm, mm. particularly when you've got combat veterans mm. on the ground it can be quite difficult for them it can actually trigger them mm, um, mm. because they're reliving some of their own experiences but it can be incredibly rich and valuable for the rest of us i remember one falklands veteran who went on to become quite a senior officer uh find it very difficult to cope with the sob because mm. he was reflecting on some of the terrible things he had seen and the losses in in his own battalion. Of course, nothing on the scale of the sob, but nonetheless, it it, it was quite triggering for him.
Mm-hmm. I've had a, a similar experience um, with a, a, a staff tour. He's actually a retired officer and joined as well. He was a Falklands veteran. He'd been a young officer in the Falklands. And um, we were actually down uh, on, on the Somme as well, looking at various things. And, and it, he um, actually asked my permission, could he just have some reflections on, on being junior officer and leading men forward? And, and he, he gave just a comment on, and it's always stuck with me because it's one of the soldiers sort of asked about, um, you know, soldiers, these officers just go forward with your know, swords drawn or revolvers in hand. And this chap came forward and uh, it said, well, you know, I was in the Falklands, et cetera, et cetera. I think he was at Tumbled Mount Tumbledown. And all you can do is you trust the training of the men around you and you, you head out into the front and you just trust they're going to follow you. And it was a very powerful intervention. I remember that. And, um, it's it stuck with me. I mean, it, it was years ago now. That was one of my earlier battlefield tours. But you do get that kind of insight, and that's the sort of insight that carries so much weight when you're when you're giving a military tour as well. Yeah. The other thing I think is really valuable is the way that, again, specifically soldiers, though I've actually seen airmen and sailors be very good at this as well, is their ability to to interpret ground. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're not a trained soldier, and I certainly am not, you can sort of do it. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, actually getting the soldier's eye view, uh, an expert mm-hmm. view, I think it's a better way of putting it, is really valuable. I went to Alamein once, and I, I, I wasn't the, the lead historian. I was, uh, I was, I was Professor Neil Barr's bag carrier because he's the man who was written the book on, on, on the three battles of Alamein. But I, I was there as, sort of, as, as a backup historian, as it were. And walking the ground, um, the first thing which struck me is that it's, the desert isn't flat, but nonetheless, when you hear about ridges, they are little more than bumps in the ground. Mm. And at one stage, we all got laid down on our stomachs, and suddenly it was transformed. Mm. Because... Mm these bumps in the ground suddenly assumed a degree of significance you just couldn't see when you're standing up. And of course, when you're talking about elevation to actually get a better view over, over the enemy positions, all of that is is terrifically important. So Alamein is one example of which ground uh, made a difference. And also I can think of some of the, of the chutes we used to carry out in Normandy, mm, go mm. to you know, for example, the battlefield of Operation Goodwood. Great, excuse me, armoured offensive launched on the eighteenth of, of July, nineteen forty-four, or Epsom, which takes place in, in 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 late June, and just looking at apparently insignificant patches of ground, it comes to life when someone says, "Well, you realise that looking at that village over there, actually." There's a village just a few kilometres away. And if you've got a machine gun in each, you've got interlocking fields of fire. So anybody coming through the middle is going to get hit. All of this sort of stuff mm. is really mm. valuable. And I have learned a huge amount over the years, particularly from taking military people on battlefield tours and, 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 and staff rides. And so actually, I'm now, as a, as a historian, I'm far more aware of the importance of of ground of terrain. Of course, you know, intellectually, I knew about it all along. But it's once you actually get onto the ground, physically get there, get on your stomach, Mm. that's when Mm. it really hits you. 
Mm, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, plentiful examples of this. Um, one I'll, I'll just give uh, Spion Cop. So Spion Cop. Oh, I'm very jealous about this because I've never been to the South African yeah. battlefields. Highly, highly recommend it because they're, they're so untouched. And, and Spion Kopf, those who don't know, a bloody battle in the Boer War. Very briefly, the British get onto what they think is the summit of a ridge, Spion Kopf itself, but they actually find that ridge is exposed. It's looked on, effectively, it's overlooked from three separate directions and it's engaged from three separate directions with, with pretty grisly consequences. And when you stand at the base of Spionkopf and you look up or, or a bit further away, you can see what the British see. And it's, it looks from that position, well, this is definitely the summit. If we capture that, we're going to overlook everybody else. It's only when you're actually on it and you're in the position the British occupied and you look around and you think, oh, crikey, actually, we're being overlooked. We're, we're sort of on a plateau. And that, though you can read the description of that, and books have commented on this, and you can see some people represent on maps. It's only when you're actually there and you you understand why the British thought it was going to work. And then when you can imagine when they got there and suddenly the fog clears and, oh my God, we're being hit from all these angles. That that I remember thinking, this is a really powerful moment. And that's just one. There's, there's many battlefields where you you, ha- you can have that reaction. And this actually leads me on to a, to a question. And this, for, I'm going to pitch to you, Gary. And this is, do you think you can write in detail about a battle without having walked the ground? Well, Spence, that's a fascinating question. But you know, I think we've got enough material for a second episode on battlefield tours and staff rides. So I think on that cliffhanger, we're going to stop. So it's goodbye from me, Professor Gary Sheffield. And it's goodbye from me, Dr Spencer Jones. Mm-hmm.